White. I'm a clay sculptor and I'm passionate about all things creative. This podcast is about talking to all kinds of artists, the how and the why they create. I talk to painters, poets, actors, musicians, novelists, clothing designers, leather makers, jewelers, potters, and there is often wine involved. The goal is to celebrate art and artists and all the contributions that enrich our world. Thanks for joining us. Now, on to episode number eight. Keith Johnston, who, according to Wikipedia, Keith, you're a pioneer of British and Canadian improv, playwright, director, creator of Impro System and Theatre Sports, author of two widely read books, translated into multiple languages, Impro and Impro for Storytellers. I've got them on my shelf and so many other things. So thank you so much for for agreeing to do this conversation. Now, usually I've been sharing a glass of wine when I talk to people, but you don't drink wine. So I've, I've made a pot of green tea. Mm-hmm. So hopefully someone will serve you some tea along with what I'm going to have. So <laughs> that's just a hint for the other people that Can might be in the room. There we are. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. A little civilized. <sighs> Do you have a particular green tea you like? I just drink green tea sometimes. Just green tea. Okay. My green tea, it, it had a name on it. It said Hong Kong weekend. <laughs> so as I was trying to prepare for today, I mean, I feel like I know you because you were pivotal influence in my life with regards to learning to improvise. And then I met my husband through theater sports. But when I was looking at your website, and I was trying to prepare and then the only quotation that's in red on your website says, don't be prepared. (laughs) So I closed the computer and I thought, okay, (laughs) how do you feel about all these years that you've dedicated to the act of improvising? Well, uh, it's been a huge influence. Yeah. But not for the good. Not for the good? No, I won't go to see it. I haven't seen improvisation for years. Oh, okay. What do you think of what of the improv that you see on TV? I don't watch it. Oh. I'm astonished how much of it comes from me. Yeah. And they're doing a sideways scene. Yes. I see it when I go by the, when I channel surf and, you know, things so specific. Um, that, that all came from you. So you're... They don't, they don't know that. They think it fell out of the air. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, nobody... It's so long. And I don't, I use improv now in the other work, in my my visual artwork that I do. I use that. It's a method of thinking that you applied to theater. A lot of people take it forward into other thought processes. But improv and theater, what was your impetus? Like in the 60s, you started the theater machine. And was that an improv company? Was that the first improv company in London? Yes, it was. It was. And we were successful and we toured and we toured in other countries. Yes. I should probably have stayed there. Uh, Why do you say that? Well, we were very successful. Oh. <laughs> you know, we could have been working in bigger spaces all the time. Oh, uh, okay. And we could have made a proper living from it. I didn't organize it the way this culture organizes things. Yeah. I did all the work, but I paid the same as everybody else. I should have had a paid someone to do the lights and stuff so I wasn't so tired oh man because whenever we toured yeah I was checking out the space yeah while they were going around art galleries oh really so you were doing everything uh, yeah art galleries were a good solution for us because what do you do during the day in another country yeah where you drink and get drunk and then you do a bad show 
least you go to art galleries and you drink coffee. Your shows are okay. Oh. <laughs> and I started by taking the guys who weren't in work because it's very difficult if you can't contract them. Uh, so okay. if, they, if they get work, you suddenly you don't have a group. Oh, I, I see. So I picked the guys who didn't get work. And then they became wonderful improvisers. And but so the method is good for training. Oh, I see. And then you'd lose them because they'd be get they'd get wonderful yeah. and go off to other acting gigs. So you're 88 now, and I was told that, and it's like, no, you're not, because <laughs> I always think of you as exactly the same when I last saw you. So that's phenomenal. That's why it's all the green tea, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> and being interested and curious constantly. Are you still teaching? I don't know. You don't know? (laughs) No, because my last workshop was in February a year ago. Oh, COVID. Because of this virus. Yes. So whether I'm still teaching or not, I'm not sure. Teach in Canada. Can't see myself flying across Atlantic a lot. You wouldn't want to right now. That's very true. I like teaching. Yeah. Keeps me awake. Well, maybe the glasses are straight and your your face got bent. (laughs) That's right. The ears. The ears got knocked forwards. Yeah, yeah. So can I just go back a little bit for people that don't know, because this, this podcast is is all about creativity. And when you started out, the, the seed of the idea for improv came from when you were a new teacher and you were working with difficult kids at a boarding school. They gave you the worst class. They always get the worst class of the new teacher. Yeah. Sort of, you get, well, unless it's a wonderful school, but in a normal school, there's a class nobody wants. Right. So they give it to the new guy. Yeah. And then you graduate to the other classes and escape from it. But I like those kids. Yeah. So they you saw potential. Well, there were 20 kids who were supposed to be uneducable. Oh. And there were 10. Mm-hmm. And then there were 26 kids <laughs> who were eight years old. Oh, my Fairly God. normal. Yeah. That was not a good mix. No. But then the kids you couldn't teach started doing good work. They were just lively. They, they, they were just full of energy. Yeah. And one yeah. or two of them were kind of hopeless, but the rest of them were super. It was How did you get them to do the good work? What, what, what was going on? What was your technique? I should, should probably have been fired. I should have been fired as a teacher. There was a divisional officer mm-hmm. who had to okay you as a teacher. And he certainly didn't like me. When he came in the room, the kids would all scream because there was a imaginary hole in front of the door. He wouldn't walk, he wouldn't walk around the hole. He wouldn't play that game. All the artwork was stuck together in a huge mural at the back of the class. Ah. Then you can't really mark, you can't mark each person for art since they're all doing this huge mural. Oh. oh. Huh. I was... What I succeeded at was getting, getting them interested in writing. Right. Okay. And I went in to do that. That was my, I wasn't really interested in being, being a normal teacher. Mm. And every day I went in with another method and it didn't work. And it didn't work and it didn't work and it didn't work. And then after about six weeks or a couple of months maybe, I asked them to write about their dreams. Oh. And nobody had ever shown the slightest interest in their dreams. And their dreams are very important to them, of course. Yeah. I mean, their literal nighttime dream. And then they all wanted to write. Really? I, tried, I would have gone trying different things every day. Yeah. I would have gone on for the whole year. So suddenly, I finally had a class of kids who desperately wanted to write. 
And it was, be, what, what do you think it was because it was the dreams was a, a jumping off point more to their imagination, to their subconscious or? They wanted to write about something that really interested them. Okay. And, and the normal teacher thing is write the history of a penny or something. Oh, yeah. Every night they're having fantastic situations. And then I got them to the, do the Kafka thing. This morning I woke up and I was, I was a banana. Oh. <laughs> whatever yeah and they liked that that was a very good transition from the dreams and then they illustrated each other's dreams okay yeah and then the school was inspected and matches his inspector and he goes around the school and suddenly there's this one class where they're all desperately writing oh it was the only class of course no i got out of that class was <laughs> teaching six-year-olds mm. and they were fun yeah and yeah. I remember the inspector came back and you saw that class as well. Um, and he, he allowed you to keep teaching. <laughs> yeah, he, he told that divisional officer who never came near me again, ever. Really? And okayed me from a distance. Well, oh. he, he doesn't think I should be a teacher. Ah. And I shouldn't be because I'm not a normal person. Yeah, you don't follow the rules. I, yeah, I'm not doing what I should do. Mm-hmm. And he, so he's right. And mm -hmm. then this inspector comes in, who is far above him in power, doing the best work. Mm, isn't that incredible? Had to teach three years. Okay. So two years in Battersea. When I got the job there, the, I had to see a committee who were really interested because most teachers wouldn't want to mm -hmm. work with those kids. Okay. In those days, it was a very slummy area. But I've, I'd been a Christmas postman in that area, and I thought the kids were great. So I was a strange specimen to this mm -hmm. committee because mm -hmm. the teachers all wanted to work with nice kids. Yeah. I wanted to work with the nasty kids, you know, the kids in this working class district. You liked them more. They were more interesting. I liked them, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I liked the kids at the bottom of the class, actually, because I'd been bottom of the class myself. I'm a professor emeritus of Calgary University. Yeah. But I'm yeah. not qualified to enter it. Yeah, funny how that works. Couldn't get in as a student. Oh, my God. Got in as a professor. Well, and luckily. Once you're, in, once you're in one university and they accept you, you're yeah. in the club. But it's, it's very difficult to get in the club yes. without qualifications. But you managed. I what was well known you... at the time. Yes. Well, you still you still are. I've actually, even though I was your student at one point at University of Calgary, and I, I was so nervous that I just wanted to make sure I did everything right, which I know is against everything you taught us. <laughs> Say be average and be obvious. And yes. I All used to shout to be more boring at the actors. Yeah. I just sort of then known as the only acting teacher in London. Yeah. This was at the Royal Court Theatre Studio. Yeah. Which I directed for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, well, because the actors were all trying their best and then they're tense and they don't have fun and, mm -hmm. and they, they don't connect. If someone's trying their best, they can't really see you. They can't really work with you because they're trying to be better than they are. And yeah. they are already in a good state. Also, mm. I like actors who, who are mysterious. I don't like actors who show you everything. And there are two people on the stage and one shows me everything. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to watch the other one because if you get to my age, you can't remember things. Oh, I thought it started at my age. <laughs> Who was the guy? There was a film called The Mosquito Coast. Okay. I think it had Harrison Ford in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was a 15-year-old boy who was called Rivers something. River Phoenix. Right. Yes. When he was 15, the director said he was perfect for the movies because he seemed to have secrets. Mm. And that's very good. That's he's, he's not showing you the stuff, but the stuff is going on inside him. So Bondage. what made you come to Calgary? What made you come to Canada? Oh, I wanted to start a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything was, sometimes I had money in England, sometimes I didn't. I'd been to, I like Canada, I'd been to uh, Expo 67, my group went there, mm. invited by the Canadian government. When we got there, we were told you couldn't, we couldn't perform more than 20 minutes. And we'd come all this way. Oh my. We said, well, we you know, we, they said, you can't hold the audience here because you're in the middle of a fairground. Oh. <laughs> the youth pavilion. Okay. Very beautiful theater. Yeah. You could get right into the audience. A really good theater that we like working in. And we did mm-hmm. six hours a day. And the audience would come for three hours and then they'd go for lunch. Oh my gosh. And then we'd go outside and get them to come in again because <laughs> security guys were not letting them back in. Oh no. <laughs> This 20-minute thing. Oh, my God. It's six hours a day just because Canadians were saying you can only do 20 minutes. In the 20 minute. minutes. Yeah, you only do 20 minutes so they aren't very interested. Yeah, yeah. But if they're fascinated and it's you, they've never seen anything like it. Wow. Then they'll stay forever. They haven't seen anything like it. Oh, yeah. So that was the theater machine yes. that went to Expo. Okay. And we had fun there. Well, I think that was in Quebec, too, wasn't it? In- so then you emigrated to Canada to... Yeah, then I went to 67 and 68. Mm-hmm. I went to Victoria. Oh. Caused some sort of trouble there. After I left, they said, this is not the way theatre is going. Well, it is Victoria. What's the way, way theatre went? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Joseph and his multicolored coat or mm-hmm. Godspell or... Oh, yeah. those plays. Yeah. You did that. You, you did a a play with a, a rock band in Victoria. And TV and wow. the art department loved it, but drama department, no, not really. Oh, yeah. Then I came in 71. Okay. Cars. And Richard Courtney left and came to Calgary. Oh, okay. And he worked to get me to Calgary, okay. even though I hadn't got a degree. And I wanted a permanent job of some kind. Yeah. I had a fantasy I'd go to Canada and Spend a lot of time writing. That didn't work out. <laughs> you still wrote quite a bit, though. How many plays have you written? I don't know, about six or something. Yeah. I published some in a book. I don't think I really explained that some of them were like short stories. It's exactly the same dialogue as in the plays. Mm-hmm. You make it as a short story. Because mm-hmm. it's so hard to read plays. Yes, I totally agree. It's much easier reading your plays. So, so then you finally, you landed in Calgary. Yeah. And you were teaching and, and then, and then you co-created and you were artistic director of theater sports, the very first theater sport. 
The very first theatre sports were in London. Right. But it was illegal at the time. Illegal. Improvis improvisation was illegal. <laughs> what? And, yes. <laughs> London. Really? It had been everything had to be censored. The okay. Lord Chamberlain office. Oh had my to see gosh. every play or script by a comedian. And that had been going on for 200 years. Wow. I but I was, I was actually doing the teaching in public. I mean, it was really a class. Oh, my. It never rehearsed. We would go on the stage and I would set them stuff to do. Yeah. And get, try to get them to do it. And the thing you see on TV, what's it called? Whose line is it anyway? Yes. It's like what I did, but the person in charge has set some things to do. I was the person who had to set it and make it work and okay. find endings for it. Force them not just to be stupid. And well, I want stories. I want things to develop. Yes. And theatre is about people changing. If they don't change, there's no drama. But they go on the stage in order not to change. Mm. So that feels like weakness. And they're trying to be safe and not take risks. I don't want to see people as being safe. So if my group got onto something safe, I'd kick them onto something unsafe. Because that's more fun. More fun for them as well. So the world is full of people now trying yeah. to make improvisation safe. Mm -hmm. And they won't go into the future and they won't alter, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. It's the easy reality. The American system has taken over. Yeah. I it's, mean, it's for the gags. It's for the laughs, isn't it? It's well, I hardly ever asked for anything from the audience. Maybe one thing just to prove that we can improvise. Yeah, yeah. to make sure it's not a setup, right? I, don't, I didn't even, I wouldn't say we were, I mean, if you're not improvising better than rehearsing it, mm -hmm. don't improvise. In a way, it's easier if there's one person in charge. Okay. I think when I left, we'd keep rotating the person in charge. So but it was sort of, you would be like the director for the night and then... I would be would... on the stage with them. Oh, okay. Telling what to do and okay. making it work. That's what's so difficult. Right. But it's nice for them because they know it's my job to make it work. So mm -hmm. they can relax a bit and just do what I say. Okay. So and you're taking they, the responsibility. Yes. If it doesn't go well, That's we can fault. blame you. They can blame yeah. you. As a teacher, I tend to do that anyway. Mm -hmm. I apologize to them and say sorry. <laughs> it's a I learned that from you. It's a great thing to do as a teacher because you take that takes away so much, so many expectations from the students that just like, let's just have fun. If things don't work out, you can blame me. So but, but things worked must, out. It must work out. Yeah. You have to know enough to make it work. Yeah, absolutely. But my, my great enthusiasm was the cinema. Mm. I thought the cinema was the great art form of the 20th century. And I was a, a passionate fan of people like Buster Keaton. Mm hmm Mm -hmm. I, was, I was teaching masks at the Royal Court Theatre Studio and Devine, who'd shown us the masks, asked the guy, George Devine, he heard I was changing things. He decided he had to give some mask classes that I could watch so I would oh. understand. But he was teaching comedy. It was arranged that I would take over teaching comedy. And then he discovered that the students were better on my work than on his work as, as masks and that yeah. The new stuff is really good. But also, I, I discovered that I'd seen endless comedy films, mostly silent, early love, Hardy, mm -hmm. or Chaplin, of course, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was more of a Keaton fan. 
Harry Langdon, uh, Harold oh, yeah. Lloyd. Yeah, Harold Lloyd, yeah. Anyway, somehow it fed into me so that when I had to teach comedy, mm -hmm. I somehow was an expert. And I used to say, I got to stop doing this. I'm wasting my time here. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, I had no. Nothing, yeah, I had nothing to do with theatre. Oh. And I'm seeing all these films. So that's so, how I came to teach comedy. Yeah. What? So what makes you laugh nowadays? We're not laughing much here. But you are. <laughs> well, I'm just wondering, like, so do you watch anything or listen to anything? Or or, or like you said, the silent film stars, which no, I can a, completely I'm agree. A of Angus T. Jones, I think he is. Okay. Is this He's, a I watched him grow up. His timing was wonderful. Ah. He was the boy on Two and a Half Men. Oh. If you've seen that. Yeah. That boy. Really? He's become That's a... fantastic. Very yeah. interesting. I'll Remember, look he up. is a kid. Yeah, I do. A chubby kid. But he's perfect, and he doesn't try to make you like... Uh, yeah, he's... Keith Jones, okay. But I think he should be remembered. Keith, I remember laughing so much in your class, learning so much. Was your intent with your teaching always to look for the funny? I was teaching comedy, and mm -hmm. it was so... We was laughing so much that I thought, this is not good, this is fake. Oh, really? I, got to I had to test it. I mean, how do you know if it's real? So you had to take it into public, and it has to be a public who don't know you. Uh -huh. Your friends mustn't be there. So I wrote to colleges in London and offered them a free show, and then we would go and give a class. I give a class, and, that's, and then people started inviting us to be on stages. Oh, and it was illegal. Oh, right. It's and, illegal. And the, the Lord Chamberlain, the censors got really head up about that. Oh, my God. I believe there's a lot of correspondence about this. Really? Because about... my group are doing anything they like on the public stage. Without and being approved. And nobody else is doing it. Oh, my God. It's breaking the law and they could take us to court. Oh. Sometimes people got taken to court. Really? Joan Littlewood, Littlewood the, the best thing director got fined because somebody imitated Churchill's voice. Oh my gosh. And somebody else walked across the stage holding a plank at a phallic angle. <laughs> they took her to court and fined her. Oh my gosh. So this is like, what, in 1960? 19... Yeah, no, this was definitely not. Yeah, 1960. Yeah. In no the end, yeah, but I won. They, they got rid of the censorship. I mean, really? So, yeah, you, so the Britain theater, has you to thank for that. Okay. They do, they, partly. Mm -hmm. But if they if they prosecuted, here's the trick. If they prosecuted me, yeah, I would say I'm teaching in public. If you want to ban a teacher from teaching in public, mm -hmm. that's an enormous can of worms. Yes. So, yes. so also the British Council, this is part of the British government, sent us abroad to important theatre events because we were the thing that was new. And also, we, my, my work wasn't private. We could let anybody into the, uh, into watch the classes. So if important visitors came from abroad and mm -hmm. wanted to see the work, mm -hmm. the new work, mm -hmm. the only place they could get into was my theatre. Really? The theatre, right, because you couldn't get into the Royal Academy. Oh, okay. Very difficult. Right. You could if you yeah, went through a lot of channels. 
So it, was that where the germ of the idea for an audience came from for later on when you created theater sports? It was oh. more, the audience was more like a sporting audience rather than a theater audience. It was, a, it was something we did in class because it woke everybody up. Okay. Let's say you're playing a taking the hat game. Well, if the two players each come from a different team, Mm -hmm. The audience get riled up and cheer and yelling. Yeah. And it becomes a sporting event. Yeah. They're invested. And then if you want to make it a bit more complex, you have other things going on. And you have a judge, three judges <laughs> we ended up with. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the judge is there to keep it going. Yeah. He's not there necessarily to be right. He's yeah. trying to be honest, but it's yeah. nice if he makes mistakes. Yeah. Then people scream and yell. Yeah, they get mad at them. Yeah, so well, it's, we, nothing, it's nothing like a normal normal class. No, nothing, nothing. So so that started in class, and then it morphed into the theater no, company. It, it couldn't it oh. couldn't be done in, in England. Right. It, it absolutely looked like a sporting event. Okay, they wouldn't allow you but, to do but, that. No, they were absolutely get away with doing a class with four students. Every, and it, it mustn't look like a class. So. There were one or two groups that started off, started off imitating us, mm -hmm. but they were obedient. Oh. <laughs> My guys were disobedient. Okay. Were misbehaving, and it was a bit like the teacher with the unruly class, or mm -hmm. the lion tame with a bunch of talented but unruly lions. So it all happened as a process. But the reason it didn't happen in England before mm -hmm. is that it was actually forbidden. Incredible. Somebody had to break the law. Wow, so break the law to improvise. I'm, wow. I'm told there's lots of stuff in the records about all this. Well, you know, if you ask me, that should be a HBO movie. So I just, you know, the question comes down to who's going to play you, but. <laughs> so when you started the first company in Calgary, Theater Sports, Yes. And there were teams of actors. It started at the university before we turned into public. Yes. Yeah. I think I think it came really because there were like 24 people wanting yeah. to be on stage. Yeah. So okay. we arranged it that there would be three theatre sports, different versions a yeah. night. And a beginner's game and a 20-minute free intro section right. where you could get in anyway. Yeah. And then someone would be teaching a game so that the audience would get more informed. Could sometimes be the best. And when it, it was a good show, it was fantastic. It's not like uh, it went to see a theatre play and, the, and that play was bad. That would be remembered. But if you, if you went to see a theatre sports show and it was bad, it's just like, yeah, they're having an off night. And they'd, they'd forgive the actors. Also, we see the audience. Mm -hmm. Everything is out front. We used to like to get volunteers on the stage. The way you treat them, it's like you treat the whole audience. But some groups get volunteers on the stage and they don't make them look wonderful. They try to make, they still try to make themselves look wonderful. Yeah. But if you get a volunteer on the stage and you make them look really good, then the whole audience becomes benevolent. Yeah. And you need a benevolent audience. Yes. <laughs> Once you get that, you can, you can stand on one leg and they'll laugh at you because yeah, yeah. they want to support you. Exactly. I think, I think a guy called Quintilian 2,000 years ago said that. You want a benevolent audience. I don't think anybody said it since. Well, thank you for saying it now. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's interesting. So, you need a benevolent it's, audience. Yeah, it's taught a lot of comedians yeah. come out of loose moose. Oh, many. Made a lot of people feel braver in front of an audience. It's and true. it was fun. 
It's true. And like failing was part of the entertainment for the audience. Oh, if you want to, to look good nature, fail and not punish yourself. Mm-hmm. And then it feels like good nature. It, yes. And then the audience thinks that's remarkable. I don't think they even think it. They just feel it. This is a place where people are not punished when they fail. Mm-hmm. But wonderful performers understand that. There's the uh, Jack Benny mm-hmm. went to introduce Liberace as a guest on his show yes. and forgot his name. Who are you kidding? But he he may have forgot it on purpose. Yes. (laughs) Because his reaction to that was fine. He didn't in any way punish himself. And then you think what a good-natured person Jack Benny is. Yeah. You don't, like as an audience member, you don't feel like you have to be embarrassed for them on their behalf or anything. It just, it's a relief in both ways, isn't it? But the normal thing is to hide when you fail. In class, they'll say, they tense up and no, it just be average. Just average. Yeah. And then there's no fear. I interviewed Vina Sood a couple of weeks ago, and she was saying one of the first plays she did with you just before opening night, the actors are gathered around and for advice from you. And you told them, well, just try not showing up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, thought, I bet the box office was thrilled with that advice. <laughs> I used to sometimes... On a bad night, I would sometimes take the group to the corner, give some advice, and then things would get better. People could never guess what the advice was. Say something, and I say, mess about, make my life difficult. Yeah. And if they do that, they forget about themselves a bit, and they start trying to make my life difficult. So is a lot of it just trying to get out from under the ego? Yes. Yeah. I could describe a game. Yes, please. I buy all the spoiling that I'll use some. You come into a scene and there's somebody already there and you know what you want them to be mm-hmm. and they don't know who they are, but you establish it. Right. The beautiful, beautiful thing about the game is that you can't talk until they know who they are and right. they can't talk until they know who they are. And they have to guess that yeah. you're just incredibly bad at communicating. Yeah. But if you go in and you kneel down and kiss their ring or something, mm-hmm. they're going to be the Pope or some religious person. And then they can say, bless you, my son, or something. And <laughs> start the scene. It's a great way to start scenes. Great. But people yeah. have a lot of problems thinking up what to say. Uh, they believe they're yeah. unimaginative. Yeah. This is not true. Yeah. Now I explain why. They're, they think they're asking themselves for an idea. Now, I say... Copy somebody else's idea. Mm-hmm. The important thing is, can you communicate the idea? Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what the idea is. Sometimes helps to relax them a bit. But the real problem is they're asking, they're not asking for an idea. They're asking for a good idea, oh, and can't. then they can't think of one. Yeah. But I'm, actually, you think let's make him into a toaster? How the hell are you going to do that? But that's the skill of the game. <laughs> And it doesn't matter if you fail or not. Right. Trying to make the person into a toaster is going yes. to be worth watching. Right. It's, so then you say we can yeah. make him into a glass of milk. We can make him into an atomic bomb. And you, know, yeah. you, you can make him into a dolphin. It's to hell with it. Yeah. Doesn't then matter. there's an endless supply of yeah. ideas. Yes. And the person that you thought was unimaginative is released. Is released. But they mustn't look for good ideas. They just take the idea that's yeah. there and see if they can use it. Right. So in that case, you can transform somebody, mm-hmm. dull person, to a bright person just by explaining what their secret maneuvering is. 
Yeah. Learning to improvise for me, it was a paradigm shift in my life. It was transformative because you learned how to use another part of the brain and, and it's never, ever changed. It's like, I just feel like there's a, another part open and accessible as long as I practice those, how to say yes to those things that keep the doors open instead of keeping that judgment. A lot of those things are for beginners, really. Mm -hmm. I know. Once you know. know what you're doing, you can do anything. That Yes, but subconsciously, if you're yeah. saying yes all the time, like I always remember you saying to us, if you know, you say yes to everything in the real world, I'll have you over washing my car on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> But it does really help in any kind of creative or any problem solving pursuit to say yes, just those simple things at the beginning, and then take it forward instead of being trained where most of us are trained to say no to keep ourselves safe. Yeah, but people are trying to get wonderful ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's useless because mm -hmm. you can't work with them. Mm -hmm. So there are some ideas. I was in Finland watching an American group that was, and they took somebody with them as they replaced. They replaced an actor. They're about to. They're on a boat. It's about to land in an island. Mm -hmm. And the guy they invited said, let's light a fire on the boat. And why? Well, because they were about to land on the island. Mm -hmm. And that's going to change things. His unconscious procedure is to do anything, however insane, that they don't have to go land on the island. He altered. Yeah. But because they was learning to say yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> they said yes, sir. They light a fire on the boat. Right. And that's insane. Right. Okay. So it's not Sometimes, always. Yeah. It depends what the ideas are for. Some some ideas are for making the person look good. Mm -hmm. They're dead. I mean, you can have a mental list, methods to destroy stories, and you can consult that mental list and you can always screw the stories up. Yeah, yeah. If you want to write a detective story or something, you bet most of your writing has to be average. Yes. How often do you need an idea every few pages? Okay. So if right. you know that you should be obvious much of the time yeah. and not be original, then right. it would be much easier to write the book. To, not, to, to seek to not be original then. Yeah, yeah, the obvious. The obvious. The obvious is very difficult. The obvious is very difficult? How do you mean? But if you think, I, I couldn't get the actors to look authentic. Oh, okay. Often an improviser has to be an actor, not just a comedian. Okay. Yeah, and not everything should be just silly. Yeah. But it can be on a thing like, whose line any, is it anyway? Because they're only doing 16 minutes or whatever. Yeah. And they shoot for four hours in England. Yeah. So they're doing right. 16 minutes of a four-hour show. Yeah, so it's it is pretty down. easy. Yeah. yeah. I'll give you an example. In 1922, some Dane was doing work with chicken and about pecking orders and who pecks who and all the rest. Mm, mm -hmm. And all of this is known. He wrote about his jackdaws, about the power between them. And if a, number, if a male number one jackdaw in power and mates with a female, all this stuff is known about animals. Okay, right. Dominance and submission and all that. But then that was 1922. As far as we know, nobody ever taught it as an acting exercise. A pecking order. Yeah. Okay. The status, ever. Yes. It took me, the writer's group, I was trying to get some authentic behavior. Lots of scenes at bus stops. Did again at the studio and for about two months we did it. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get, it's like, it's not like teaching the kids, it's, you mm -hmm. keep finding, trying new ideas. 
And then one day I seen a Chekhov production by the Moscow Arts in London. Every person had the strongest possible motives. Really? Somebody coming on the street. A hundred years, they've changed the roles. Right. Each actor has told the other next actor how to do it. And so nobody can come on with a suitcase to put on the stage without having a total massive motivation or whatever. So I went into the studio and said, can we find the weakest possible motive? <laughs> We do it, and then then we had it normal human behavior. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a weak motive at all. Mm. We were trying to get a little less important than the other person, or a little more important. Oh, yeah. and there's pecking order. And then we had, there it was human behavior. And there it was human behavior. And that was the perfect summation for our conversation because right after that, for some reason, our recording cut out. So again, I'd like to thank Keith Johnston for coming on and describing his life in improv. Keith's work has affected so many different people in so many different creative areas. I still use his creative thinking methods in my approach to art making. It was a true honor to interview him. So thanks very much for listening. Stay tuned for the next Creatives Uncorked. Because remember, creativity is intelligence having fun.